Welcome to Eagles, Globes, and Anchors, the strategically-minded podcast of the Marine Corps War College, covering the intersection of strategy, security, and warfare. Welcome to Eagles, Globes, and Anchors. I'm your host and dean of the Marine Corps War College, Becky Johnson. Today we're discussing the 2020 Commission Report on the North Korean Nuclear Attacks Against the United States, a speculative novel published this fall by Mariner Books. Our guest today is Dr. Jeffrey Lewis, author of the 2020 Commission Report. Dr. Lewis is the director of the East Asia Nonproliferation Program at the James Martin Center for Nonproliferation Studies at Middlebury Institute of International Studies at Monterey. Before coming to CNS, he was the director of the Nuclear Strategy and Nonproliferation Initiative at the New America Foundation. Previously, he was executive director of the Managing the Atom Project at the Belfer Center for Science and International Affairs at Harvard, executive director of the Association of Professional Schools of International Affairs, a visiting fellow at the Center for Strategic and International Studies, and a desk officer in the office of the Undersecretary of Defense for Policy. You may also know him as Arms Control Wonk. Dr. Lewis, thanks for coming on the show. Hey, it's a pleasure. Before we start our discussion of your new book, can you tell us a little about how you got started as Arms Control Wonk? Yeah. So in the early 2000s, I was a graduate student. And, uh, I, you know, I was an unusual graduate student. I had worked in, in Washington and then I was still living there. In fact, I was even still working part time when I started the program. And so I was used to publishing and, and, and just generally being, uh, you know, around. And then as a graduate student, it was like I was suddenly demoted, <laughs> you know, <laughs> like, I, you know, it's like, oh, now you're just a student. It's like, but wait, I, I had a job. And and I just got frustrated with that. And I, I really felt like I wanted to be able to publish what I wanted. And so I, I started a blog and it was great because I, I have a slightly off color sense of humor. And, and in 2003, if, if you wanted to swear or, or make an off color joke, there was zero chance anybody was going to put that in print. Mm-hmm. And so your desire to both be relevant and also a little less formal is the, the genesis of Arms Control Wonk. Yeah, you know, I mean, one of the real revelations for me when I was a a young person living in D.C. is how much difference there was between the official policy talk, Mm -hmm. um, which was very staid and very professional and, you know, frankly, sometimes a little dry and boring and not all that accessible to outsiders versus how vivid the conversations were when, you know, after work, we all got together at a bar. Um, And I just I liked that style more because I actually think nuclear weapons issues are pretty exciting and pretty interesting. Um, And so having a blog gave me the editorial control to sort of bring that uh, that vernacular and and just put it out there. I I don't know if it was for good or for ill, but but I did it. Well, certainly as social media has developed over the past decade or so. You're able to engage a much broader audience, I think, than if you were just issuing regular reports through the traditional think tank channels. Yeah, I think so. I mean, it's been it's been really interesting. I mean, one of the kind of fun aspects uh, of of this whole process has been seeing how people's expectations for what uh, policy writing looks like has changed. So, you know, when I when I started the blog, Michael Crapon, who I adore and who now blogs for the site, you know, he was very worried that I was going to destroy my career, <laughs> you know, and so now he now he writes on it. And and I got one job offer. And the only requirement for the job offer was that I give up the blog. Oh, <laughs> and wow. I said, no, I won't do that. And then the second job offer, which I, I, I ended up taking, it was like, well, you can keep the blog, but it has to totally change. And I, I figured I could take that one and just ignore, ignore the, <laughs> ignore the advice. So, you know, 
early on, people were quite negative about it. And, you know, to be fair, I didn't know what I was doing. And I sometimes look back at some of the things I wrote and, and particularly the way in which I said things and think like, oh, you know, 28 year old me is <laughs> not as not as uh, not as uh, calm and balanced as 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 current me. Well, specifically to your most recent book, definitely balanced, in my opinion. I don't know that I would call it calm. <laughs> yeah. Stomach churning right. was more of my reaction as I was going through it. But but let's talk about the 2020 commission report. So it's it's focused on a fictionalized escalation of force between the United States and North Korea that results in North Korea striking the U.S. with multiple ICBMs. And I'm going to try not to give away too much because I want people to read the book. I think for my money, hands down, the most important book written this year for folks who work wow. in national security. I, w- I couldn't put it down for well, as, thank you. as painful as it was for me to read it. It's like a train wreck and you can't stop it, you know? Yeah, that's what it was like writing it, too. I mean, I could just see, you know, I would write myself through a, a, a section and I would be like, you know, I, I, I knew because I'm the, I'm the inventor of this whole thing. I knew that this was, you know, one more step in the chain of events that leads to catastrophe. But I, 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 I felt pulled along writing it, I, I suppose, in the same way you felt reading it. Yeah. So what led you to write a work of fiction versus a more traditional analysis on the, the risk of a nuclear attack or a nuclear escalation between the United States and North Korea? Well, so I, I had been asked to write an op-ed for the Washington Post that was about how the United States and North Korea might stumble into a nuclear war. And I had written a lot of nonfiction pieces trying to explain how I think the North Koreans think about nuclear weapons and how, how their strategy might interact with our strategy. The problem, though, is that a nuclear war would be a crazy outcome. Mm-hmm. And it, it turns out it's really hard to explain in nonfiction a rational route to an irrational outcome. I mean, you can do it, but but it, it's one of those things that because it relies on pathologies and decision making and human frailty and misunderstanding, that the language of nonfiction, you just you you see all the off ramps. But when you write it as a story, um, you can kind of talk yourself into the perspective of the various characters and you can see how they would make that mistake. And you could even yourself feel tempted to make that mistake. And and so it just I think it it helps show how things could go wrong in a much more compelling way. So I, I suggested to the post that I try writing it as a, a fictional op ed. And it was, you know, it's pretty well received. Uh, and, and then I got a call from uh, Houghton Mifflin and and, you know, my editor there, uh, Alex Littlefield, thought there was actually a book, which was amazing to me because I wasn't really sure I could do more than the op-ed, but as it turned out, there was enough there. Oh, absolutely. So the book includes all real-world events through August of 2018, and then fictionalized developments that are based on those real-world events from August of 18 through 2023. What were some of those critical real-world events that anchor the book? One of the things that I'm uh, I'm, I'm quite taken by is how dramatic the development of North Korea's uh, nuclear capabilities has been. And, and, you know, I think that to a degree that we don't really talk about very much, that has really shaped both this current period of engagement that we're going through, um, but I also think poses a lot of dangers for how that engagement could break down. And so, you know, the book sort of imagines then going forward, you have this period of engagement now when it breaks down. And so for me, one of the central salient facts is that North Korea has this capability. 
and, and you know, I don't know that we always appreciate that. You know, I mean, I, I still occasionally encounter people who say like, well, I mean, this this is all made up, right? Like these missiles don't really exist or these nuclear weapons don't really exist. And so that that, at least for me, is the big one. And what surprised you when you were writing the book? So you had already talked about, I like the way you say that it that it's hard to take a rational route to an irrational outcome if you are writing uh, in a with a fictionalized account, or it's easier to understand the irrational route or the human route to an irrational outcome using fiction. But but what specific insights did you gain approaching this as a work of fiction that, that you might have not gathered if you had done more traditional analysis? Well, there is a perfect one, which is when I was writing the book, you know, I had to imagine a uh, a misperception scenario, right? A situation where Kim Jong-un has some information, but it's not quite right. Uh, and, and he's going to interpret it in, in the, the worst way possible, at least the worst way in terms of like, you know, bringing about catastrophe. And, you know, that in a nonfiction setting, the way we always talk about how command and control works is we sort of say like, well, we don't know how command and control will go wrong, right? But we often in crises see that command and control systems do not work the way we expect. And and it, just in nonfiction, that is such a hard thing to say, right? It's such a hard thing to explain to someone like, look, I know you've built this command and control system. I can't tell you how it will not work, but I can tell you that if I look at every other single command and control system in the past, there's always some surprise. And so, you know, that's really hard in nonfiction, but fictionally, and, and the thing that I learned and was just really shocked by is there is a particular uh, historical event, and maybe it's not true now, but it, it it worked perfectly. The North Koreans, until at least very recently, and I suspect they still do, rely on their civilian cell phone network to communicate. I found an interview with the Egyptian director of the network, and and he said that the North Korean leadership was so convinced that all their other uh, lines of communication had been compromised, that for sensitive decisions, they rely on a an encrypted channel on their cell phone network. And then he told a particular story, which I kind of vaguely fictionalize, where in 2012, when the North Koreans are about to do a space launch, they came to him and said, OK, we want to shut down the cell phone network because we want to control what information goes in and out. And he says, that's fine. But you have to understand, I can't just turn off one part of it. I have to turn it all off, which means you will lose all of your secure communications. And they were like totally surprised by this. So it was, a, it was an instance where I learned how dependent they were on a piece of civilian infrastructure. And I saw how fragile it was. And in particular, I saw that the North Koreans themselves did not understand the implications of relying on this. That's so interesting. I feel like with national security professionals, we see it with our students all the time. They take their professional development very seriously, but for them that means reading military history, maybe exploring future war concepts. But we can have a difficult challenge in convincing them of the value of fiction. And it, it sounds to me like you see real insights coming out of fictionalized accounts because it opens up avenues for us to think of these black swan events. Maybe they're black swan events, maybe they're just less than traditional SOP, regular um, assumed pathway events. They get us out of our own rational assumption head and, and let us think of things in new ways. 
Yeah, that's right. I mean, what they do is they let us put the humans back into the story. Right. You know, when 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 we are writing nonfiction, you just you can't help but kind of assume this perspective of someone who is omniscient and can, and can see all the little things. And it, you know, there is some work like the organizational theory literature is sort of very good about understanding the systems are so complex that you can't really, really always see into them. But I just think as human beings, it's much easier to understand that in fiction. You know, there's a second benefit too, which I, I have to say I found I really liked about fiction, which is whenever I talk about how decision makers make suboptimal decisions or maybe decisions that approximate rationality without actually uh, achieving it. In nonfiction, it, it sounds really judgy. <laughs> you know, it sounds like I'm saying like these policymakers are bad. You know, you, it's really hard to do it with any kind of empathy. And, and I actually, I mean, I don't know that I would describe myself as particularly sympathetic you know, to, to any particular policymaker. But I found that as I was telling the story, you know, I had my characters making bad decisions, mm -hmm. but to me, it did not feel as judgmental as if I were dissecting it in nonfiction. You know, I could really paint their mental, emotional, and information state in a way where, you know, I think a reader could read it and think, boy, I'm almost, most persuaded to do that. Or maybe even, you, you know, you read it, and you think, yeah, that is a good, that's the way to handle that problem. And then a second later, you're like, oh, wait, no, 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 don't do that. <laughs> you know, so it, I think it comes off as, as, as less judgmental. And, and, and at some level, I think that then allows us to be more insightful about, about the, the mistakes we all make. I think that's fair. And, and for me, as one of the readers, that's part of what I found so disconcerting. It was that this escalation on both sides or on all sides, it almost happened it seemed like it was by accident that the different actors misread signals. They misinterpreted how their signals were going to be seen. Do you see this misperception, the idea of misperception as a critical element to any potential escalation? Or was that just the way this particular story developed as you were writing it? Oh, no, it's a central aspect of my life and career. You know, when I when I was in my Ph.D. program, my advisor was a guy named John Steinbrenner. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and he wrote uh, it's a it's a wonderful book with a terrible title, The Cybernetic Theory of Decision, which in a longer podcast, it turns out it's actually it was a joke that he got stuck with. But, you know, for John, John's whole work was about how you have these incredibly complex systems that human beings have to deal with. And, and those incredibly complex systems can be anything from nuclear weapons, you know, all the way down to, if you imagine playing tennis, you know, you, you cannot imagine a tennis player actually doing all the calculations, you know, that are behind the incredibly complicated act of hitting a fast moving tennis ball with a racket in just such a way to make it go to a certain place. And so he was really interested in how human beings make sense of that complex world. And, and you know, we're pretty good at it, really, you know, really good at it. But, you know, just like the tennis player, it is, is a fact of life that not every ball gets hit perfectly. So, you know, I often see in public policy those kinds of mistakes and errors. And it's, you know, again, like in nonfiction, it, it sounds like I'm saying that like the policymakers are bad and we should go get ourselves some better ones. But I think in the book you can see, like as long as those policymakers are going to be human beings, right, you're going to have those same problems. You're going to have those same mistakes. And so instead we have to like think about making systems that are 
resilient enough to deal with the humans. So one of the parts of the book, probably the part of the book that was most painful for me as a reader, had to deal with the aftermath of the attacks. And so I, I read your book um, on my phone on a ride up. The, the War College class was heading to New York City for a week of meetings with folks. And so I had the, the New York City skyline in view as I'm reading about the attack on New York City and the aftermath. And you mentioned in the book that you drew uh, a number of those accounts from uh, survivor accounts of historical events. I won't tip the, the hand on that for the readers to discover on their own, but I will note that we dedicate time in professional military education at different levels to defense support for civil authorities and incidents response, but I don't think we've done nearly as good a job as you do in the book highlighting just the emotional overload that would occur in a situation like this. Do you have any recommendations or any thought on how our military and civilian leaders could prepare themselves to face a scenario like the one you present? Yeah, I mean, I think that the the big challenge there is going back and and looking at the pretty large literature on on uh, on disasters. And I, I think we don't do it because it's not not fun. And that, I mean, maybe that sounds a little flip, but, you know, I'm a member of the governor of Hiroshima's roundtable on disarmament. So I go to Hiroshima every year and a really interesting and moving aspect of, of that trip is that, you know, I don't have the option of not engaging with the stories and, and really the reality of, of what happened in, in Hiroshima. And so, you know, for me, you know, it's not that part of the trip is never, you would never say it's enjoyable, but it is centering, you know, it really helps you think about how, catastrophes unfold. And, and, it, and I think it helps illustrate the role of, well, I, I guess I would say it this way. I think we have a lot of ideas about disasters that are informed by television and, and, and you know, I suppose, books like mine. And I don't think they're always very accurate. So one thing that I do differently in the book uh, than, for example, you would see in like a movie like The Day After is, you know, in The Day After, human beings are pretty awful. You know, society collapses and, and, you know, kind of lapses into this like, uh, you know, Mad Max kind of situation. And, you know, Hiroshima, the suffering was incredible. Um, it was, it's really terrible. But what's also interesting about it is how resilient people were, you know, and that people immediately began trying to help one another out. And so, you know, I think if we, if we go back to that literature, right, and we really, really spend time with it, I think what we'll find is that human beings on an individual basis are actually pretty resilient. And so we can imagine designing structures to get those people the help they need. You know, so the last thing I'll say on that is, you know, if you go to Hiroshima, there's a there's a monument. I mean, there are a lot of monuments, right? But but often the monuments are to people who showed up to help, you know, people who brought medical supplies. You know, and and so, you know, you never I don't want to make it sound like this is a this is this is a this is a, a you know manageable event. I mean, it's a, it's a tremendous catastrophe, but human beings you know are are resilient, and it you, you don't have to kind of lapse into fatalism. You can imagine a situation, you know, where you help those people who have survived, um, and and you know you, you you can try to ameliorate that, even though it of course would be an overwhelming catastrophe. Well, and maybe that's another advantage to a work of fiction is is you've identified that it helps us understand human misperception or human frailty 
but maybe it also gives us better insight into human strength and how uh, people can step up in moments of adversity and, and not what we would assume in our rational context would be a survival of the fittest mentality. Well, maybe that's not, not the way that people would go. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, it's a funny thing, but I think these two things end up being a little bit related because I sometimes feel like I'm here. I am criticizing the day after, which I generally think is a is a, a fantastic made for TV movie. But just, you know. In my in the day after, you get the sense that people are pretty awful and that's why you have the nuclear war. And I don't think that I think people are pretty good. It, it's just that I feel like the situation is complex and very dangerous. Uh, and so I feel like, you know, if there's going to be moral responsibility assigned, it's not really human nature. You know, we can make different choices. So what should folks studying national security take away from this book? What do you see as being the lingering lessons? There are big lessons and there are little lessons. And and so, you know, if, if we're really talking about folks studying national security, I I think I would emphasize the aspects of the book that are about decision making. You know, early on when North Korea was developing an ICBM, I remember a senior U.S. official saying, um, you know, North Korea would never use nuclear weapons because Kim Jong-un knows that would be suicide. And I think that that gets Kim Jong-un exactly wrong, right? That that in a a conventional conflict, Kim Jong-un knows that if he doesn't use the nuclear weapons, then he is going to end up like Saddam or or Muammar Gaddafi. And I highlight that to say that that senior official was so confident, right? So confident that he understood Kim Jong-un perfectly, which is, you know, like, it's crazy. I mean, I don't mean it's crazy in a national security sense. I mean, it's crazy. And like, I don't know what the person in the office next to me thinks on a day-to-day basis. You know, you don't really know those things. And so I think that all of us who work in this field have to have a real humility about the unexpected and about the role of, you know, human frailty and accident and chance. Because I think because when we study something, we, we start to feel a sense of mastery, that we really do know how things are going. And you know, like we do know things, um, but I think we have to have a, a, a healthy respect for chance. So last question, what are you reading right now that our students should know about? I actually have been binging on the history of photo interpretation. Uh, Because in my day job, I know it's incredible. I spend a lot of time staring at satellite images. And the analytic piece of that to me is, is really, really interesting. And so at the moment, I'm reading two things. I'm reading a book called NPIC, right, which is the National Photographic Intelligence Center, or interpret, sorry, the National Photographic Interpretation Center, uh, NPIC, Seeing the Secrets, Growing the Leaders by Jack O'Connor. And I'm also reading the memoir of a woman named uh, Constance Babington Smith, who was a photo interpreter in World War II. And uh, sometimes people call her the uh, the woman with the X-ray eyes. She is the the person who first spotted uh, a V-1 buzz bomb in a in an aerial reconnaissance photograph without any real frame of reference for what such a thing would look like. That's awesome. So, yeah, I mean, analytically, for her to be able to pull that off, uh, and she didn't find a member of her team did, uh, was also the first person to spot a V2. And so um, I'm just fascinated analytically. How can you how can you see something when you don't know that you're looking for it and you don't know what it looks like? It's, it's pretty impressive. 
That's great. So Dr. Lewis, thank you so much for being on the show. The 2020 Commission Report is available in paperback, audio, and Kindle, so listeners, there's no excuse to miss this riveting and important book. You can receive regular updates on arms control, disarmament, and nonproliferation by following Arms Control Wonk on Twitter or checking out their website, www.armscontrol.com. To keep up with the good work of the Marine Corps War College, follow us on Instagram, Twitter, or Facebook at at McWarCollege. I'm your host, Becky Johnson. Thank you for listening to Eagles, Globes, and Anchors, the strategically-minded, innovative podcast of the Marine Corps War College. This concludes the EGA podcast. Thank you for joining us. The views expressed in this podcast reflect those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the views, policies, or positions of the United States Marine Corps or the Department of Defense. You can follow the Marine Corps War College on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at at McWarCollege. And as always, our podcast music is Stuck in Traffic by Romero. Have a great day.